0: I always say it, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, um, and I'm a pastoral apprentice here at uh, Church 21. Um, I'll just ask God for help. Lord, let the word um, that I share uh, be from you. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it and give me your grace as I speak in Jesus' name. Um, So uh, we've been traveling through, um, if you've been with us, over the past week, a sermon series called Him and Her. And in this series, we've been asking the question, what does God God say about topics like sex and gender and marriage uh, and so on? And over the last seven years or so that we've been functioning as a church, uh, we've done sermon series like this in the past. Um, If you were here last year, you might remember uh, Sextember, (laughs) uh, the series that we did. Um, But this series by far is the most ambitious series we've done in terms of the, um, the breadth of topics that we're covering. Um, can you just put it to the first slide? It's not working. Um, so th- this, this series by, f- by far is the most ambitious series we've done in terms of the, the breadth of topics we're covering. And as far as I know, it's the first time that the, the topic of singleness uh, has been covered. And so, so why? And one of the interesting parts of preaching through a sermon series like this is, well, the topics are controversial, some especially. And so we get a lot of feedback, and we get feedback, uh, if you would have it from both ends of the spectrum, people's like, oh, you're like too hard on the truth there, you're, you're too soft on the grace there, you know, this kind of thing. You're too conservative or you're too liberal. And I just want to say that, like, as pastors, we're not, that's not what we're after. We're not attempting to be either conservative or liberal, we're attempting to ask the question, what does God say in these situations? And if that butts up against your conservative views or your liberal views, then, well, good, right? Because, because God is real, and so your faith in God, your belief in God, is not meant to be sort of like an echo chamber of your, your own affirmation. No. Like God, he actually, he speaks, Right? And he's inaugurated through Jesus and through the good news of Jesus an entirely new way of being human. And that new way of being human has become known to be Christianity. But sociologists tell us that the sun is sort of setting on the the Christian, the so-called Christian West, that we live in what's called the post-Christian era. And so for better or for worse, as our culture changes its embracing new ideologies, new philosophies, and answering differently the question that has been undergirding this whole sermon series, which is, what does it mean to be human? Where do I find meaning or hope, satisfaction in life? So it's starting to answer these questions differently. So it's important that as a, as a church that we speak on these topics. It's not, um, it's not a you know, carte blanche, it's not a blank slate out there. It's not a vacuum. We're gonna learn about these topics. For sure. And so it's important that we talk about sex and and gender in the church, but it's also important that we talk about today's topic, singleness. And so this is why we're covering uh, singleness in our series. And if I look around the room today, um, I'm fairly certain like 60, 70% of this room is is single. Um, But before I lose the other 40 or so percent of you, before you all tune out this sermon, it's for everybody. uh, we're going to have, yes, a sermon on marriage in a couple of weeks. Uh, Brian will preach it. But uh, a healthy understanding of singleness will contribute towards a healthy marriage and life before God. Um, I'll give you two reasons why, right now uh, that this is important. First, um, if, the first is that most of us uh, who are married right now, either by death or divorce, will become single again. Like, think about that. I know it's a sort of morbid thought, but the the ring on your finger is no singleness prevention, (laughs) right? And the other reason would be that one, whatever happens to one part of the body affects another. So this week, I had some some back pain that affected my ability to work. Like, it hurt my brain. Um, And it also affected how I exercised. So you see, like, that one part of the body was affecting the other parts of the body. And Jesus describes the church like a body. It's a family. And so what happens to some affects another. It's a community. And so no marriage is an island. Single people need married people. Married people need single people. Um, So it helps if we can understand, appreciate each other. And so this sermon is for everyone. But before we dive in, it's really important that I define what I mean by singleness. Uh, So by being single... uh, (laughs) I don't just mean not being in a relationship and not being married. I also mean not being sexually active. And so this would be what's referred to as like celibacy. <laughs> I know it's a long lost word, but uh, I'm ref- what I'm referring to then is a, a celibate uh, singleness. And the- so the Christian worldview, it assumes that those people who are single and love Jesus are also uh, celibate. Well, why? We're gonna, we're gonna get to this in a few weeks from now, but uh, briefly, here's something I found helpful. Um, you believe you, you shouldn't pillage or like violate the person beside you, right? Well, like why? Because you believe that life is sacred, that it should be protected, respected, right? Not to be violated. And so we say life is sacred, but why wouldn't we say the act that created life is sacred. Why shouldn't it also be respected, protected? And I know not all sex leads to life. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that all life is a result of sex. And so, for Christians, sex is this time, is possibility. God partners with us to create new human beings. It's it's wondrous. It's good. It's it's sacred. And and so God says it's best expressed in the covenant of marriage, right? A place of commitment, a place of security. And and Jesus, he wasn't slack about this. I don't know why people are like, you know, Paul's uptight, the Old Testament is uptight, but Jesus is chill on this. No, Jesus, uh, Matthew 15, he teaches this in several places, but he says, sexual immorality, along with other things, defiles a person. And by sexual immorality, he meant anything outside the context of a male-female marriage. And we saw this a few times in some of the past sermons I gave, uh, gender fluidity, homosexuality, I referenced Jesus' teaching on Matthew 19, and in there, Jesus talks about marriage, like he he affirms it, the commitment required, and then from that, he talks about uh, divorce, Um, and so I'm going to dive in right here, sort of pick up where we left left off in Matthew 19. So the disciples, they hear Jesus' teaching and the, the commitment required, and they're like, Oof, like, this is hard. And they say this, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And so you see from this that, that Jesus, he wasn't, um, he wasn't teaching on marriage with rose-colored glasses, right? He, he, he understood how marriage, how hard it was. And the disciples, they're, they're catching on to this, and they're like, you know, maybe we better, like, just not... Mary, and interestingly enough, Jesus, he sort of, sort of tacitly agrees, but then he offers this alternative. And so verse 11, Matthew 19, 11, he says this. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, what is a eunuch? A eunuch was uh, someone who was uh, castrated uh, so that they could be trusted, obvious, uh, often in the service of like the queen's court or a haram or something like this. Uh, so that, uh, the eunuchs were the known celibates in Jesus's day. Um, and so Jesus, he refers to three types, you'll notice, of eunuchs here three types of celibate people. The first were those eunuchs who were made so by men, the kind that I just referred to. Um, but there are also those who have, he says, been so from birth. And this is, this is like Bible talk for people who don't easily fit into to gender categories, like the sexual minorities, uh, if, you would, if you would have it. And then, fascinatingly, Jesus actually introduces yet a third category. He says, those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so these are people then who are willing to go forego marriage, willing to forego children, right? They set it aside for this, this greater concrete hope of fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And that's kind of radical, but un- just, just notice in this, the move that Jesus makes, right? Unlike our culture, that when it sees how hard marriage is, seeks to redefine it and make it more accessible. Jesus, he recognizes how hard marriage is, but what does he do? He recasts our view of singleness. He doesn't make marriage more accessible, right? Actually, the only alternative to marriage Jesus offers is singleness. And so when we're talking about singleness today, I'm not talking about the cultural view of singleness, right? The sort of casual fling to casual fring, fling, never, never uh, settling down, never committing, you know, friends with benefits, no strings attached, none of that. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus's definition of singleness. Um, those who are celibate for any of the three reasons that he gave, those who are made that way, those who are from birth, or those who have chosen it. Um, And so today we're gonna be looking at uh, the problem of singleness, the price of singleness, and finally, the potential of singleness. So first, the problem of singleness. Problem of singleness. Some of you, are you gonna hear that and you'll be like, yeah, that's me, singleness is one of like the biggest problems I have in my life right now. I just wanna say like, man, (laughs) if that's you, I'm praying that the spirit of God will begin to change the way that you perceive your singleness. That, that Christianity, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, rede- like uniquely redeems singleness as a blessed and a, val- a valued calling of God. A blessed and a valued calling of God. And so if you're single, you're not deficient. If you're single, you're not abnormal. You're not weird. You're not second best. No, you can live a fully flourishing life before God. In fact, singleness is a wonderful gift of God that should be affirmed and celebrated. But we, we, don't, we don't usually experience that, do we? And so while singleness itself isn't always a problem, what I want to point out in this problematic point is, uh, this problem point, is that there are two problematic ways with which we can live out our singleness. Um, and they're almost at heads with each other. It's sort of like the advantage uh, and the disadvantage. And now, some people see it, the advantage of singleness would be um, the independence you get, right? I can, I can do what I want. I can go where I want. I can just focus on myself. It's the I'm doing me thing. Now, it's true that you do have more independence when you're single than when you're married. And Paul talks about this. But the question that he brings to it is how are you going to use your independence? Have you you turned that freedom into an ultimate for your own end? Because there's a lie in our culture that tells us the more unencumbered you are, the more unhindered you are by commitments, the freer of a person you are. But let me say this. The inability to commit to anything is not a virtue, it's a vice. It's a selfish, sinful freedom. And it will impact your ability to form any relationships. Not just romantic relationships, any relationships. Well, why? Because you're, you're so focused on yourself. You're so turned in on yourself. And I can say that a big part of my life was, was characterized by something like this. So you can have right reasons for being single. You can also have wrong reasons for being single. And I, I didn't date anybody for the longest time, uh, partially because I just didn't want to commit. Right? I didn't want to like close down my options. I didn't want to narrow my options. But this didn't help anyone. It certainly didn't help Sandra when she came along. It didn't help me. It didn't help any of my friendships. And so, in contrast to all of this, we can come into our chapter, which was 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul says this in verse 32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of himself. No, he says the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. And so if you're single, don't use your singleness as an excuse to live for yourself, no, commit to Christ, commit to his, his body, the church, commit to friendship. Singleness is, is not a get out of responsibility free card, right? No, it's an opportunity to give undivided focus towards Christ and his kingdom. You see, singleness, we tend to define it in the, as being the absence of positive things. Like singleness is the absence of marriage, it is the, the absence of children. But Paul doesn't define singleness as the absence of a positive thing. He actually defines singleness as the absence of a negative thing, the absence of worldly anxieties. Let's read more of this, the context of this part here. 1 Corinthians 7.32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. It's important to note that what what Paul is saying here is not that uh, married people are less spiritual and single people are more spiritual. Uh, This is just a very practical observation about uh, capacity, about energy, availability, if you would have it. Uh, And hear me, like, to my married friends, like taking care of your spouse, taking care of your family, that's, that's a good thing. It's right to busy yourself with those, with those worldly things. But, but in that, don't think that you're exempt of what I was talking about earlier, the sort of selfish independence thing, right? See this, yes, it sometimes presents itself, in our singleness, but it can also present itself in our marriage, right? Those two selfish, independent single people come together and form a sort of selfish, independent marriage. I remember when some of my friends uh, started getting married, there were certain ones amongst them, which became just very difficult to contact at all, to do anything with it. There's this like radio silence. Um, I heard somebody uh, recently talk about this as, Uh, Frodo marriages, they put on the ring and they disappear. (laughs) And and like, hold, like, hear me. Like, I know marriage takes a lot of time, right? And I know with each additional child that you have more and more time and attention, focus is rightly taken towards that commitment, right? But what I'm saying is your marriage, your family, it's not meant to be an island. Right? It's not an excuse to, to disengage from the, the rest of the church body. In fact, if anything, you, you need the body more than ever. And so Paul is calling us away from our, our selfish, independent, single, or married lives. And now the second way, of, or problematic way, I should say, of, of living out our singleness is this. Rather than singleness being a, an advantage that makes you know, independent and free, it's a disadvantage that, that burdens you. And, and we see this all over the place. Uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I came across the movie 40 Days and 40 Nights. I hadn't seen it. I was like, okay, I'll like pull up the trailer. And this is, oh, this is a movie along the, the same lines as 40-year-old Virgin. The trailer starts like this. It's like fade out of black, and then it says, Matt Sullivan... He's a young, normal, healthy American male about to attempt the unthinkable. No sex for Lent for 40 days. And I just like, that was enough. Like, there I had it, right? I got the gist of the movie. <laughs> and you also get in that the gist of how the culture thinks about singleness, right? See, if Matt is this healthy, normal, uh, young American male, then celibate people are like, Unhealthy, weird, old, right? (laughs) So to our culture, you can see, to our culture obsessed with sex and romance, celibacy is unthinkable, right? And that obsession, it's actually, I just wanna challenge us, it's translated itself into the church to make a heightened emphasis sometimes on marriage too. right? We make it sound like marriage will complete you, it will fulfill you, and just notice how that's a repackaging of the same thing, right? Traditional cultures, marriage, family, right? Without it, it'd be a lack of security, lack of significance in your life. Marriage is your duty. And then like modern cultures, marriage is like the pinnacle of personal fulfillment. And so this, this results, these ideas, right, they trickle, and they result to us believing in singleness as a sort of unhealthy burden, and it condemns us to a life of loneliness. In fact, we're so convinced uh, singleness is a burden that many of us have felt like desperate, looking for a romantic relationship to, to relieve them of that burden, to, to complete them. And there's a, there's a tragedy in this. It creates a sort of a neediness or a desperation uh, and I've seen people, they've bought into this tragic narrative, right? I've seen people actually jump into unhealthy marriages just to escape single purgatory, right? That's, it's, it's, it's disastrous, right? <clears throat> and so the response to the, the loneliness that we experience sometimes in singleness, it, it shouldn't be desperation for a romantic partner, and it also I'm gonna now add, it shouldn't be giving in to isolation, right? These are problematic. No, rather it's an invitation the loneliness we sometimes experience to press deeper into Jesus and into his body, the church. <clears throat> because what we're really looking for in all of this is intimacy. And it's been said, as a, as a culture, we've actually conflated sex and intimacy Because you can have have sex without intimacy, right? We know that. But you can also have intimacy without sex. But what does it look like then? What does it look like to have intimacy without sex? Well, this is where the church comes in. This is where the body of Christ becomes uh, so real and so necessary for believers, both friendship and as as family. So I'll I'll hit those both off. Friendship, deep, mature uh, friendships be, between believers. This is where, think of like David and Jonathan. I wish I had time to do a whole teaching on this. Or Ruth and Naomi. It's like quoted at weddings sometimes, right? Jesus too, he valued friendship. Like Lazarus was his friend. Or, or think of his relationship with, with John. And Jesus says himself, greater man has no, love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus calls you his friend. And how does he, well, he, what does it look like to be a friend? Well, he opens up his life to you. And that's what friendship is, opening up our lives to each other. And so you don't sit around longing for it. Like you're sort of proactive. If you wanna get it, you sort of have to give it. Like, why is nobody opening up their life to me? Why does no one invite me over? Well, start, start by opening up your life to start inviting some people in to your life. Be a friend, right? But also be family. Um, and this is what the church has described as, as a, as a family that through the gospel, and I, I'm gonna come back to this, but through the gospel, the, the, the boundary, if you would have it, between nuclear family and spiritual family is actually blurred. And so we, we begin to like integrate, overlap, fold these two families together. And so this is where the married couples, the families, they open their homes to single people and single people to, to the married couples. And, and, and for married people, just before you like, buy into this idea, your family has to be its own little island or tower. There's a double benefit here to this, isn't there? That your children, they need, they need to, to see and experience faith practiced out by other people. There's a value, there's a goodness to that. Other examples of Christian community and so this is all to say that that singleness it should not mean isolation, right? Uh, Sam Albury is a, a celibate uh, Christian pastor uh, based out of the UK, and he has a book coming out this week called Seven Myths of Singleness." And so uh, I would invite you to check it out when it comes. I'm excited about it, but he certainly has a lot of helpful ideas um, that helped me even in preparing this. Uh, a few years ago, Sam was at McGill. Um, And one of the things that I remember he said that was very helpful for me was that because he's chosen to not be married, there's a depth of intimacy with one person that he'll never experience. But on the other hand, there's a breadth of intimacy that only he can experience that I never will, right? So celibacy opens up this breadth of intimacy, intimate relationships that marriage, you can't have that in the same way. And so churches, they should be celebrating the breadth of intimacy that's possible in celibacy, that it enables. And so singleness, it shouldn't mean isolation. It also then, it shouldn't mean, and now adding burden. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 7. I wish that all were as myself am, and by that he meant single, Um, but each has his own burden, no, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul calls singleness a gift. And you're like, ah, this is not a gift I was given, right? This is an idea that has actually been really misunderstood, I think, in the church. We think of singleness sort of like a sort of like a special power or a special capacity that certain people have, and then they can thrive. And then we say in turn, like, oh, like I'm really struggling with my singleness, like, I feel lonely, I strongly desire marriage, I must not have the gift of singleness. This is God showing me that I'm not gonna get married. This is God showing me I should be getting married and I will get married. But notice, uh, Paul uses this same language of gift to talk about the gift of marriage. And he isn't saying that some married people have the gift of marriage and that some don't, right? Because marriage, like singleness, has its really hard points, its hard spots. And so Paul isn't saying, like, if your marriage is difficult, well, you just must not have received the gift of marriage. You can just bail out now, right? No, no. He's talking, when he's talking about gifts, he's actually talking more about the status itself. Your status as a married person, your status as a a single person, that that status, it's it's a gift from God. And it's not a special capacity, but it's also not a burden. Your current status, it's given to you for your good. And that's true, even if you're not experiencing its goodness right now. Um, My friend David, which I referred to several weeks ago, uh, in the Sermon on Homosexuality, he writes in his book, A War of Loves, This, he says, I forgot to put the quote on the screen. Uh, Celibacy is neither an easy gift nor a repressive burden. It's an opportunity to trust God's capacity to provide our need for intimacy. And he goes on, he says this, forsaking all others, do the words of marriage ring hollow when we speak them about God? forsaking all others. This is, a, this is a fierce reminder, isn't it? That our, our true romance, our true marriage is the real marriage with Christ. And so, see, it doesn't matter in the end whether you're single or you're married. Either way, you experience the goodness of God. And so these are two ways that we can live out our singleness, one being a sort of selfish independence and the other being a burdened isolation, and both are deeply problematic. And this brings us then from the problem to the price of singleness. I'm going to do this by telling the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and in it how the eunuch encounters, discovers Jesus. And it's found in Acts chapter eight of your Bible. And uh, Acts, eight, it kind of, it zooms in, the story zooms in on the apostle Philip. And the spirit tells Philip, you know, go into the wilderness. And so Philip, he goes into the wilderness and he's, he's going along and he can see, traveling across the desert is a chariot. And it says, in the chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch who served in the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. And it says he was returning from worship in Jerusalem. Now, being a eunuch would have been something that came at great cost. Not only, this is traditional culture, right? Not only would you have foregone the, the Jewish pinnacle of life, marriage and family, uh, raising children, but the Bible also made it impossible for those who were eunuchs to come into the presence of God. Deuteronomy 23.1 no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord." And yet the spirit of God tells Philip to to actually run up alongside that chariot he sees going along. And it says he can hear the Ethiopian eunuch reading from the Bible. He's reading from the Isaiah scroll about the suffering servant. And it says this, and so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet and asked, "'Do you understand what you're reading?' And he said, "Well." how can I unless unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come sit with him. And notice, I'm going to make a bit of a plug here, but notice that the Ethiopian union, he's not trying to interpret scripture either as an island. He's not exercising a sort of selfish independence. No, he realizes his need for community and understanding scripture. And so that's why as a course we offer, a church, we offer courses like understanding God's, story, right? And you can still join this week, so speak to Ryan or Jeff after, but get back into it. So (laughs) verse 32. Um, Now the passage of scripture that they were reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. And in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And Philip begins to unpack. He begins to explain how this is an ancient prophecy that has become fulfilled in Jesus. And this is, this is then good news, and it's, it's good news. How is it, though? Is it, how is it good news for this celibate single? How is it good news for this Ethiopian eunuch? Well, it's good news because Jesus too knew the pain of rejection, like a lamb before the slaughter. And in the face of a a Jewish culture that prized family and a Roman culture that prized sexual liberation, Jesus was unmarried, childless, celibate, and he too had his celibate status looked on as, as weird and abnormal and unhealthy. He too experienced loneliness and wrestled with his calling. And yet Jesus never acted in independence. No, he was fully committed to the Father's will. He could pray, not my will, but yours be done. And I wanna stop here for a moment. I wanna ask this question, is that true of us? Have we really lived for his will to be done in our lives as it is in heaven or for our will to be done? I know for myself, this was a a long time and it still still is in a sense coming in my life. But in my last year of McGill, um, I started praying this. I, I started praying, God, whatever you want me to do in your life, help me to be willing to do it. And man, did that prayer ever like whack my world around. And I'm not talking about being married, right? I'm talking about like a whole new suite of plans, a whole new suite of ideas that God had in mind that I didn't have in mind and that I'm still actually finding out about. And so are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to follow God? Whatever the cost, whatever the life status in our case, whatever the life status that God gives you, because here's the truth. You will never find the freedom you're looking for in independence. You will never find the fulfillment you're looking for in sex and romance. It's a lie, right? It's like a breath on the cold winter's day and it's gonna vanish right in front of your eyes and leave you wanting. But the good news that the eunuch needed to hear and that we need to hear is that Jesus will never leave you wanting, that Jesus takes our sinful ideas of fulfillment and freedom, and he turns it all on his head. And unlike us characterized, right, trying to maximize our autonomy by not committing, Jesus fully commits himself to the Father and goes to the cross. You see, it wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was committed love for his Father and you. And unlike us seeking to find fulfillment in sex and romance, Jesus always only found perfect fulfillment in the Father, in God Himself, right? And unlike us who were disfigured, He was perfect. And so He alone could enter the assembly of the Lord, and yet He extends that invitation to us who are disfigured. And He does it. How does He do it? He does it by paying the price for your sin and he does it by paying the price for my sin, death. And so this is the problem and this is the price, but what is the potential? Did you catch what Philip and the eunuch read in that scroll? There was a question in verse 33. Who can describe his generation for his life was taken away from the earth? What generation did Jesus have? He died childless, right? The answer is only a few chapters away. A prophetic promise, Isaiah 56. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give a house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off." Who is the one who made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God? It was Jesus, who was the one who kept the Sabbath, who always kept the covenant? It was Jesus, who was the one whose life was not cut off? It was Jesus. No, he was raised up to life again so that you and I could be adopted, grafted into the family of God. A family in which God is our father and every believer on this planet is our brother and our sister. This is a new family. It transcends biological families because it's more real and is more lasting by virtue of it being eternal. And Jesus, he passed through all of this for us. He conquers death so that he can bring life. And so in Jesus, freedom and fulfillment, they are not a vapor. They are reality. They are real. It is a good news. And so you can see now how embracing celibacy is not a a bottling up of desires. No, it's a response. It's a setting free of God's love in you. G.K. Chesterton said it like this. Chastity does not mean abstention from sexual wrong. It means something flaming, like Joan of Arc. (laughs) And so you can see Peter, he's with the eunuch. He's unpacking all of this this good stuff, and they're riding along. And the eunuch looks over, and he's like, hey, look, there's there's water. I'm in. What's keeping me from being baptized? And see, the eunuch, he didn't wait to sort everything out. No, he, he wants to dive right into his new identity in Jesus. He's willing to commit, he's willing to immerse himself in in the wonder and the glory of God and allow that to inform every other area of his life. And this could be my second plug, right? That we wanna offer that to you as a church as well. Saturday night, March 30th, our French, our English services, they're coming together um, so that all those who know and love Jesus can publicly declare their new identity in him. And so I ask, is this the question? Is this what the spirit of God wants you to do? But back to our story. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch does not end there. Do you want to know how Christianity spread to Africa? It was this black, celibate, Ethiopian eunuch. Did he not have a fulfilled life? Did he not leave a legacy? Is this not the potential of singleness? <laughs> and you can say, like, Jordan, what about the creation mandate? What about, like, Jesus, you know, uh, the, the go forth and multiply thing? Well, in Jesus, now do you not see that the creation mandate has been recast? into the great commission mandate, where Jesus says, go into every nation making disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this is the new family of God that we are in, that we are all called to to, to sire, if you're spiritual children, right? This is the undivided potential of singleness. And so our lives, to summarize, they're not about sex and romance. It's not about personal fulfillment. It's not about selfish independence. It's about serving Jesus and his kingdom. And this changes how we think about our single status, doesn't it? I would like to end by giving some direction on singleness for our church community. And so I'll speak for the the unhappy singles first. Um, Maybe you see yourself as one of those who was uh, uh, made to be single. In other words, it was imposed on you by others. It wasn't something that was chosen. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but do you view your singleness as a legit, a legitimate option? Or do you view it as second best? I know that in the church. Unfortunately, we, we, we tend to, to categorize people into sort of like the marrieds and the not yet marrieds. Or maybe you've heard this, the pairs, in the spares, um, but as Christians, we're called to view singleness differently, right? It's, we're, we're not, we're called to view it differently. If this is unlike, like rabbinical Judaism would say that, uh, that singleness is a curse, that to not be married, not have children, that's a curse. Uh, Islam would say that, uh, that marriage is half your deen. It's half of um, your religious duty. That's what that means. But in contrast to that, no, we view singleness through the lens of Jesus, who is the most fully human person who ever lived and yet never had a romantic relationship. And so if if you're living as if you have to have a romantic relationship, as if that's essential for life, see how you are downplaying the humanity of Jesus. The most full example we have of human flourishing, right? Um, Sam Albury, <clears throat> I think, helpfully says that too often we compare the, the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness. But we forget there are also ups of singleness. Parts of it I mentioned, right? The advantages. Things you're capable of, a married person isn't. So don't waste. Don't waste those opportunities. Don't, don't tell yourself, you know, you need to be married before you start living your life. Um, I remember a friend of mine telling me that he, he really wanted to be married so he could start hosting people, so he could start having people over. I was like, what? Like, Why do you have to wait to be married in order to invite people over? And so we sort of get these ideas like in our head about what the good life is supposed to be, like maybe the wife, the house, the kid, and the dog, or whatever. But what, what if God has a different vision for your life? It's easy to live with a a vision for the good life, right? But what if in living for that vision, we actually miss out on the good gifts that God has for us right now, right? We miss out on it because we're so bent on insisting that God gives us good things that we don't currently have right now. And yes, um, there are... There are certain circumstances that will make singleness harder at some points than others. Just like in marriage, it'll be harder at some points over others. Um, it could be something like this maybe a friend, another friend who is single, recently got married. Or maybe it's a, a breakup. Um, but in all of this, the most important thing you remember is who you are in Christ, that He is for you that he is with you, and that one day you're going to fully be with him. And so what I'm saying here is, is keep a gospel uh, perspective about it. And so that's for those who are unhappily single. And now for those who are seeking marriage, there's nothing wrong uh, with seeking to be married. Marriage, yes, is, it's a good thing. Um, and like Dwight mentioned last week, he covered this in the sermon on, on dating. Bring, bring those desires before God. Um, be aware that they have a tendency to supplant God. So be open and honest with God about the struggle um, that you might be facing in this. You don't need to hide your cards from God, right? He, he already knows them. Um, and uh, oh, I didn't have time to get into it. Um, but at the beginning of what was read today, Paul talks about uh, in view of the present distress, it is, it is good for someone to remain as they are, Um, uh, I'll just, without reading the text again, I'll just say a few things. Like, what was Paul talking about there? Uh, Was Paul like a bitter single person? I don't think so. Uh, No, Paul also talks about uh, the sort of, the goodness of human marriage and reflecting the true divine uh, marriage. And so what theologians say is that this phrase, the present distress, is also used elsewhere to refer to temporary crises like economic or social upheaval, or like a famine, these kinds of things. And so I think we can infer from it uh, that Paul is making uh, a very practical pastoral sort of instruction. And that is, while there is nothing wrong with seeking marriage, there are seasons we should not be. Well, there's nothing wrong with seeking marriage. There are seasons we should not be. There are times in life where we're dating uh, and seeking to be married just isn't wise. And if, if you're one of those people who always needs to have someone, I would just use that as kind of a diagnostic check of your heart, that maybe you've made it something that's a good thing, an ultimate uh, thing. Uh, because there are significant transitions in your life. It could be uh, bereavement. It could be um, moving from one place to another. It could be a sickness in which the, the emotional weight of that situation uh, can, cloud, can cloud your judgment. And at those times, what you need is, is good, real friends and community, not dates. Um, and so seeking marriage is good, but, but do it with wisdom. Seek God and community in it. And, and finally, I'll speak to all of us as a church. <clears throat> um, When my dad became a widow about 10 years ago, he did not choose the gift of singleness. It was a gift that God chose for him. But my dad, being a widow, exposed me to aspects of singleness that I would never have known as a young single person. That being single in your 20s, your 30s, is very different than being single in your 50s, in your 60s in your 70s, right? And when my mom died, there were certain uh, events, uh, activities, dinners that my dad used to get invited to that he just, he wasn't invited to anymore. Um, And it was as if the church, and I'm not talking about everybody in it, but it was as if the church, they just didn't know what to do with this single older man. And this was hard for us as kids. We'd like try and encourage my dad like, God, form some deep relationships with some other people in your age category. And he'd be like, yeah, but they're all having kids and they're all married. They don't know what to do with me. And it was, it was true. He was right about that. And I'm not saying that to say like, oh, he was a victim. And he certainly didn't think that of himself. Like actually my dad had a lot to give and he was like the biggest champion behind us as single youth. But I'm saying this as a challenge for the church, right? For families, married people especially, but also for singles that, that get out of your comfort zone. Right? Get out of your comfort zone. The church, church, we need each other, right? We need to be family to each other. We need to be friends to each other. And on this whole family thing, you're like, oh man, Jordan, isn't this like, this spiritual family stuff, isn't this sort of like having a big pretend family? I just want to say, like, no, it's not. And I'm going to do that um, by moving into our time of response. And so you see that table over there. On that table is a loaf of bread. And that bread represents Jesus' real physical body, broken and given for you and me. And he did that so that you can take of his body and enter into an international community of believers, real people, right? Joined by his real body. And say, okay, okay, maybe we are family then, you say, but we're not actually blood relatives. I say, just shift your gaze. On that table is also a glass of wine. And that wine represents Jesus' actual blood that was given for you. And so a Christian, someone who knows and loves Jesus is someone who is covered by the blood of Jesus. And that means you are blood kindred. You are a spiritual brother and sister with everyone in the Christian church as much as you are a Christian itself, okay? And so this this is a real family. This is a real kinship that we're a part of. And it's more real when I say this because it transcends and lasts. It's eternal. It'll be part of the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those here who are single God, that you would change how we perceive our singleness. Did you help me see, God, that this is an opportunity to press into you, to seek you, your kingdom, your glory. Lord, help me to flourish in it. Help me to seek deep friendships, deep community in your body, the church. And Lord... I pray for the rest of us who are married or have families. Lord, I pray that we would open up our lives to any who are struggling, single or otherwise, that we would truly be family to each other, that we commit to each other, that we would be friends like you have been a friend to us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.